Howdy. I'm Kate Cavanaugh, and you're listening to The Groundwork Podcast. This begins an exploration of connectedness, looking at our own nature through the lens of nature. Mind, body, and soil. I was just taking this big old deep breath and I was thinking about one of the things that really drove me to get into this work was that I really wanted to save the prairie. So when we opened up Western Daughters Butcher Shop in Denver in 2013, I had this little quote below our mission statement that I wanted to save the prairie one stake at a time. And that's still true. Nothing has changed. I still do want to save the prairie one stake at a time. I had this really beautiful opportunity a number of years ago to go out to the Land Institute in Kansas, which I think I talk a lot about on this podcast because that moment changed my life. And I got to stand on prairie that had never been plowed. And there's very, very little of this that still exists. I think there's less than 1% of the original prairie that covered more than 40% of the continental United States that is left that has never been touched by a plow. And standing on that prairie was one of the most charged and magical moments of my life, to feel that squishy and soft humus soil beneath my feet, all of that decomposition and life, all of those cycles, so many years, and just you could feel the density of the soil. And the way that these grasses hang on the topsoil and they draw water deep into the earth using these gorgeous long tap roots, that was a real moment for me. And when I said that I wanted to save the prairie one stake at a time, I really wanted to see the reseeding of perennial grasslands after they have been largely converted to, to cropland or desertified by their lack of ruminant impact and and just by by sort of what I'm going to call human hubris. And a big part of saving, I mean, really the only part of saving the prairie is ensuring that water gets where it needs to go. And if you want to look this up, Wes Jackson's work, he's he's grown some some prairie grasses sort of in isolation so you can actually see the tap roots. And he has them in these beautiful glass jars, which I'll include a link, a link to this in the show notes. But he has these beautiful long tap roots and these photographs of them and their life sites, and they reach 10, 15, 20 feet deep. And that root system is actually meant to, to pull water both up from the water table and to, to create space for that water to be absorbed through the soil when it rains. Because out west, capturing water is one of the most important things that we can do. And what happens when you have compacted soil that hasn't seen love, whether that's from animals or it's been let to be crops or it hasn't been covered in the winter, right? There's a lot of different forces that could impact the soil in this way. 
Water just runs off of it, like off of a duck's back, but that's not what it's meant to do in soil. It's meant to be absorbed. What happens when that water runs off is not only are we not refilling that water table or replenishing things like aquifers or nourishing just the soil that's there and allowing that water to be captured, it's also taking topsoil away with it. So we lose about 1% of our topsoil every year from erosion, and I'm sure some of that accounts, you know, water runoff, as well as wind on uncovered soil. And that number represents somewhere between 24 and 35 billion tons of topsoil. So that's over three tons of topsoil per person on this planet that's lost every year to the wind. And it mostly, you know, here in the U.S., it mostly ends up in the Gulf of Mexico and creates quite a few issues. And so that water is taking away, you know, it's washing away with it our fertility. And so, I, you know, we talk a lot on this podcast about being soil farmers, but I think in a lot of ways the goal is to be water catchers, right? Like that we really want to create the best space for water to be absorbed into the earth and that that, that, that it is taking care of soil. And so one of the first things I really wanted to address on this podcast and one of the first interviews I did was with Heather Hansman, who you're about to hear speak, and she wrote this beautiful book that I always come back to called Down River. I've waited to launch this particular episode of the podcast because I kind of wanted us to dig in and to really get some conversations going before we talked with Heather. I am just amazed at her work. And the way that she has really shown a light on water issues in the West in a way that is very accessible and relatable. And, and so she shares this in her, in her book with her journey rafting down the Green River. And it is just, it is a very beautiful and compelling read. And I encourage all of you to check it out, as well as her new book, Powder Days. This conversation with Heather has a lot of big implications. This is not the last time that we are going to discuss water in the West. This is a a really important topic, and it's something we're going to dive deep into just across our work together, which I hope is is long. And so welcome to this, this podcast with Heather. We have a little bit of business accounting before I dive in to things with Heather. So a little bit of business at the <laughs> the outset of this podcast is I just want to ask you all if you've been enjoying this podcast, if you are really liking the interviews with guests, I also have some fun solo casts coming up. Could you drop into wherever you listen to podcasts and leave a rating and a review? Just hit those little star buttons. You can give me as many stars as you feel like I deserve. And if you would be so kind as to leave a review, I'm going to be reading some of the reviews on future podcasts. One of the things that this really helps is this helps bump the podcast up within the places that you listen to podcasts. Can you tell I just understand all about this? And (laughs) I would really like that. I really want these stories to be heard. And I want to offer a little exchange. If you leave me an honest review, it doesn't, I want it to be honest. If you leave me an honest review and you just take a little snapshot and you DM it to me at my personal Instagram account at Kate underscore Kavanaugh, or you can send it to Kate 
at groundworkcollective.com. And if you send that along with your address, I would love to send you a letter in return. I really love getting snail mail and I really love sending snail mail. And so this is, this is just a way for us to connect and just a little tit for tat. You write something digital for me. And again, I want it to be honest and I will write something slow and snail mail for you. And so that's, that's the little business accounting that we have to do. But without further ado, y'all, Heather Hansman. I am curious though, because we did make opposite journeys. You came from back East and headed out West and I was out West and came back East. Yeah. And I feel like that's such a big, maybe that's also just like what I'm thinking about a lot in my personal life and work life and everything life right now is like how much is place tied to all the other things that might be important in your life and, you know, community and how you, the work you do and all those things. I feel very, I think, especially kind of in my twenties, this idea of like, go west young woman was like such a big part of my identity and I wanted to be kind of in these like bigger spaces and in bigger mountains and all this stuff and it's sort of interesting now to work that back and sort of think about why that feels important and like how place how much place sort of like shapes all these other things like I know I guess how do how do you think about that right now like do you still feel really tied or does it feel does that tension feel like it shows up in your life yeah absolutely I think that I think that we're more defined by place than maybe we are even consciously realizing and I think that I staked a lot of my identity on being from the West and really relating to that place and really feeling like a deep part mm-hmm. of that place and I think even pertinent to our conversation today, a lot of the West struggles with water and its agricultural identity is a really big part of me. And moving away from that, I really lost my way the first year that we were here. Mm. I just felt... I felt untethered and ungrounded, like I was just floating through space and that I didn't know how to be with this new place. It is so wildly different. And I, you know, this like new England is so wildly different than the West and I'm still struggling to sort of find that relationship. But I think that, and I think you illustrate this really well in the book too, is that the more we come to love and know a place, I mean, the more that we become a part of a place, that's when we really learn how to care for it. And I think in thinking a lot about stewardship, being here and getting to know this little plot of land has just been, it's been a journey of a lifetime. And it takes time, right? Like you can't just drop in somewhere and immediately, I don't know. Sometimes I feel like I roll into a place or I show up somewhere and I immediately kind of feel that like spark of connection. And I feel like that is something, but I think it also does take time to kind of like understand the landscape and know why you feel connected. It's funny. We were just talking before we started recording. I was back in New England where I'm kind of where I'm from for a month this fall and there's something about that landscape that just there's like this like inherent rightness to me about it it's like the trees are the right size or something and it's, it's interesting to kind of try and shake shake that up and think about why and is it is it just like a familiar thing is there some sort of like woo-woo inborn this is part of your thing but yeah and, I, and it's like i feel very connected to the west too in a way that it's sort of like my chosen landscape, like, you know, like not just like the place I happen to be born, but like the one that I like picked for myself when I was thinking about what's important. So yeah, anyway, there's, there's so many layers in that. I think it's a really interesting thing, just how we, and, and where we're born and how that shapes it. Uh, we kind of skipped over introductions. Do you want to introduce yourself? I am going to say that 
I'm just such a big lover. When I picked up your first book, Downriver, Into the Future of Water in the West, there aren't a lot of books that really, when I look back at reading them, I can instantly feel exactly where I was. And that book was really, it changed my life. Like there was a really profound moment where I was reading Downriver and the style of writing that you have and the story that you were able to tell through this lens of being connected to a space. It just, it really moved me. And then you also have an upcoming book. Why don't you introduce yourself and tell us whatever you want to tell us? Yeah. Thank you. That really, that really means a lot. I think so my, my name is Heather Hansen and I am a writer and a journalist and sort of the, the way I think about what I do, the overlay is kind of between you know, people in the environment and resource issues and the way we use the planet and then how we as people kind of interact with that and how we're emotionally attached to it and what that's going to look like in the future. And I wrote a book called Down River, which came out in 2019, which is about water use in the West. And that book kind of tracks... I um, paddled the length of the Green River in Wyoming, Utah and a little bit of Colorado. So that book kind of follows that trip to dig into how people use water and kind of what the history and the policy and the science and the current discussions and the kind of future of that is going to look like when we do have to make hard decisions. And that means so much to me that you kind of said that it does, that the book really hit you because it is, I wanted it to be something that people could pick up and that would resonate with them. And that made these kind of like big wonky hard to understand, hard to wrap your head around issues, sort of like tangible and interesting and real. And, you know, like that anybody who has a connection to water could really sort of like see themselves in, which is a hard, you know, like you write a book and you have no idea how it's going to show up in the world. That's really, really nice to hear. Like you mentioned, I have a new book coming out November 9th, which is called Powder Days. The subhead is Ski Bums, Ski Towns, and the Future of Chasing Snow. So it's sort of about a little bit about that kind of Western journey we talked about and about this idea of skiing and moving to the mountains, which shaped a lot of my kind of early 20s and you know a lot of the ways I became an adult. And then what that world is going to look like in the future of climate change and the way the economy is changing and the way, you know, there's all these skiing and ski bumming kind of gets held up the same way river running might as this sort of like idealistic, dreamy lifestyle. And so I kind of tried to pick apart the real parts and the reasons why it's kind of not as as dreamy as it might be, but why I and a lot of people are still kind of obsessed with this idea of chasing adventure, even though it has flaws. I want to add that. Not very quick and dirty. I think that's great. And I love what you said. And I think that you do this really well in all of your writing that, that there's this interaction between people and the environment that you're trying to sort of bring to light. And I think one of the things you did with Downriver is not only did you really illuminate everything from uh, anybody who has a connection with water, but I think you kind of asked the question of why one might have the connection with water. And so I was a little bit curious though to start because there's so much adventure inherent to your books, whether that's skiing or river running, whatever that is. How did you find this space of adventure? How did you come to be in nature in this way? Because I think that's the other component of it is that this is really adventure and nature together. Yeah. Yeah. And I think in when I think about writing and also what I like to read, I love that kind of like human element and having a narrator and having somebody you can kind of like follow through whatever the, the story or the issue might be. And I guess I, how do I walk it back? How did I get into it? I think I come from like a fairly adventurous family. You know, we kind of, I have a brother, my parents are very sort of like 
scrapping out in the world. And I received kind of all growing up. And then in high school, I went to like a big, I grew up in Boston. I went to like a big urban high school and the high school had a ski club. And if you sold breakfast, you got to ski for free. So I kind of got into this, like that was like my thing. and kind of fell in with this group of people, you know, like the older boys were skiing. And that kind of became this way that I felt sort of independent and like I could kind of push my edges a little bit. So that, that was one facet of it. The river running thing, it's interesting. I guess to back it up a little bit, I've been thinking a lot in this, in having powder days to ski up kind of out in the world about those, those like pivot moments in your life where like one sort of like arbitrary decision might then shape, you know, like you, the funnel shifts and you go somewhere else. And I got into river running really kind of randomly. I, in college, I wanted a summer job where I could be outside and my mom actually like met a guy at a dinner party or something who ran a rafting company and randomly asked him if he hired college kids. So I played on scene was like, well, yeah, sure. That sounds interesting. And showed up for rap guy training in Northern Maine in May when it was totally freezing and just totally fell in love with it. And that I love the people. I love being out on the river. I love the environment we're in. I like the rush and that then that kind of group of people then led me to moving to Colorado and moving west. One of the guys I work with there got me a job in the mountains after I graduated from college. So it all sort of just, I don't know, it's hard to pinpoint exactly one moment, but it was sort of this series. Looking back, it feels linear, but I think when you're thinking about it and you're kind of like, you know, in your teens and 20s and trying to figure it out, you're just following the spark of what feels interesting or what feels right or what grabs you. And if somebody asked me the other day, they were like, if you were going to go back to you now being 20 or whatever and do it differently, what would you do? And I don't know if I could even, I don't know. Like, it's, you're kind of always like working with the best information you have at the time. So I guess long, <laughs> the long answer is that it's all been sort of like guessing and additive and trying to chase what feels important and right. I think you said something that really resonates with me and you're just following the spark. You're following what what just kind of sparks with you and what really engages you. And I, I actually don't think everybody does that. And so I think that there is this level... I'm similar and looking back, there's this level of intuition and just wanting to connect with the things that light me up. And it really isn't very linear at all. Yeah. Do you have I, moments that kind of like flip the switch in different directions or like, you know, oh, yeah. you those like sparks for you? Oh yeah. One of them was starting to eat meat again. That was one of my, my big mm-hmm. sparks, big moments in my life that just sort of changed my trajectory just off the top of my head. And then there was also just a childhood of loving the grasslands. And I think that I just felt really called to the grasslands ever since I was a kid. And so I think that that was a big, a big piece of that. And I didn't grow up with the adventuring. I grew up with a lot more quiet walking and, and not so much. I didn't ski as a kid. There weren't things like that. I kind of wanted to, and I know this is a little bit funky, but I kind of wanted to start with powder days. I had this vision as I was reading down river and I really want to dig into water in the West, but as I was reading down river, I thought a lot about the ways that we don't think about how water flows, especially in the West. And it starts, it starts up in glacial melts. And so I thought maybe we could start at powder days where the water also starts. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So it's so connected. And so, especially in the West, I think we're so much of it, you know, we're getting so much of our precipitation in the winter and spring. And then that's kind of like slowly melting out and we're using dams to store and that kind of thing. It's so hyper-connected. And I think, I mean, to, to back it up a little bit for me, I had been one of the ways, one of my kind of like strands into water, I'd, you know, worked with the raft guide, moved, moved west to chase it. And then was kind of doing this dual, you know, working on the ski hill in the winter, working on the rivers in the summer. 
then I eventually started getting into journalism and started writing. And my I went back to grad school for that to focus on environmental journalism. And my big project, we had kind of a big thesis project. And my big project was about dust on snow and snowmelt and how kind of these like things that were happening in the deserts of Utah or in China in terms of land disturbance were then impacting precipitation and storms that then was connected to how snow was melting that then was kind of like pulling into the river water system and when we were getting water. And that for me was a real, I had kind of hooked into it because of this, I had noticed these dust storms and these weird snow events. And then when I started pulling that thread, it was connected to everything. And so that for me was one of those like, wait a second, like spark moments where you're like, huh, okay, this is not just one thing. And it became, of course, like a way more complicated story to tell and a way more complicated picture. But yeah, I think that it's so easy, especially the way so many of us live now where you turn on the tap and water shows up, even in a dry city, even in kind of all these places where maybe water doesn't, wouldn't always be so accessible. It's so easy to divorce that kind of like resource use from where it's coming from and where your water comes from. And this was, you know, when Downriver came out and I was going around and talking about it back in the days when we used to be able to like see people in person. Um, I, a lot of the question was like, or a lot of the questions I got were like, okay, what can I do? You know, if we're staring down drought, what are, how can I start to think about that? And one of the big things that I settled on telling people was like, Hey, where does your water come from? Like, you know, where your local, you know, like when you turn on the tap at your house, when you have a shower, walk that back a little bit, where is that coming from? And then a lot of, you know, like, Denver, Salt Lake, or a lot of places, you're getting water that's like stored maybe on the other side of the continental divide. It's coming out of these like big snowmelt fields. You know, it is, it's so easy to not think about those connections right now, but it is, that is, and is going to keep being crucial. I was, I was listening to the radio this morning and there was a World Health Organization report that said by 2050, you know, half of the, the world may not have enough access to enough water it's just like bananas to think about so much of that is because we don't we're not kind of like thinking about and respecting those connections and are like you know blown out the kind of natural system i thought about that a lot while i was reading down river and i thought about i got kind of intrigued by the history of people and water and just thinking about it from sort of an anthropological perspective because there was a time in in 200,000 years of anatomically modern humans where we never would have been separated from a water source that was so crucial to life. And then I think 10, 12,000 years ago, we have the dawn of modern agriculture. And that sort of changes our relationship to water because we begin to manipulate water a little bit differently. It's not just something that's flowing freely down a river or a stream. It's something that maybe we're using for irrigation or that we're beginning to store. We're beginning to change the path of some of these rivers and tributaries. And then I, I thought too about, you know, water comes online in aqueducts in Rome really as a thing that removes waste. It's not even so much drinking yeah. water as just this force that removes waste. And we really begin to harness the way that water moves in a completely different way. And this really shifts at the industrial revolution, right? Like I, just this full break. And I think that 
not unlike food, there's this disconnect between where does water even come from? It just is something that magically appears in our tap. And I think to get back to what you said, this is not the case in other countries where water just magically appears in the tap or that we flush drinkable water down our toilet every day. There's a very different relationship that many parts of the world have with water than what we have here in the U.S. Yeah. And I think like you're saying, like there's water is so inherently connected to like all the ways we've developed. I mean, like obviously you can't live without water, but this like that aqueducts and that water storage and that damming is so goes back so far in human history. And like we, I don't know, it's easy to kind of in modern U.S. history look at like, like Powell or like me and be like, this is ridiculous. Like, why did we decide to store water in the desert? But like, we've been doing it for tens of thousands of years. And it's not, and like, because of that, we do have the food that we eat and we do have the cities that we do. And there's like, I think it's, it's so hard to kind of untangle. This is why water is so complicated is that you can't just like wipe the slate clean because so many of these systems that we have built up now were there for a reason. We, you know, like on balance, was that reason good? Who knows? But like we have, it's all additive and it's all built on itself. And we can't sort of like, I, I, I think it's one of my sort of like assumptions going into the downriver research coming from the side of like, river running and you know like river should be free flowing we shouldn't you know human da- you know we're damming up and we're damaging them and then i started talking to you know water managers and ag producers and it's like no there's a reason for why all these are happening and there's a reason why you know we have these dams that then let out certain amounts of water at certain times so that we can have you know showers in august in <laughs> green river utah and it's like yeah. you know like you can argue whether or not that's good or right but the fact is that it's happening and like we've made choices based on that since we're digging so it's, hard, into, it's so hard to kind of like work that back it is so hard and i think since we're starting to dig into down river I want to talk a little bit about, so we're looking at water in the West and I want to talk about who the stakeholders are in that conversation. When we talk about water in the West and you really cover this beautifully in the book, there are some major, major players that have a stake in the water conversation. Yeah. I think when I was, um, especially when I was kind of initially thinking about the book proposal and how I wanted to kind of think about covering water and why it felt complicated, I kind of thought about it like a pie chart. And like, if you have the pie, which is like the amount of water we have, how are all the segments and the slices divided up? So you have agriculture, you have municipal and industrial use, you have cities, you have sort of like water for ecosystem services, and because of the way, and we can go <laughs> deep on the Colorado River compact if we want, but basically because of the way it's broken up legally, all those different segments have a designated amount of water. So there was kind of this like defined numbers-based framework for looking at it. And so it was really important to like look at ag because that's a really big section of it. And then look at, you know, electricity generation, which is tied to water use in a lot of places. And then there are also segments that are important that don't necessarily have as much Weekly defined water. You look at those kind of, I dug into recreation, which is often a big sort of economic boon in a lot of these places, but that depending on the state doesn't necessarily have legally allocated water. Tribal water rights were a really big part of it. Tribes in the West have federally reserved water rights. So basically like they should be at the top of the system in a system that's broken down by date. Because of when they're reservated, you know, when they were kind of assigned to reservations, it's all this really <laughs> complicated colonial but because of the way we've treated tribes, a lot of them haven't been haven't been able to get their legally assigned water rights. So there is this sort of like social, historical, equity component to water. So it, I guess 
yeah, the stakeholders are, they're sort of like the number in the pie chart, the number stakeholders. And then there's also the kind of like bigger picture, you know, equity, what kind of world do we want to live in? How does that pie chart align with the future we might want? So for me, it was like kind of unpacking the history and the kind of like, how did we get where we are? And then how is that going to hold up? You know, when there are all these other sort of like, when the pie chart is shifting and when climate change is shrinking the pie. Yeah. I think that there's this historical precedent that has kind of come through the entire thread of water in the West and sort of sets it up in an inequitable and maybe maybe even in a logical manner. And I think some of that comes from, and I want to make sure to just briefly touch base on the idea of, you know, back East and in much of Europe, we just have riparian rights. And you can probably do better justice to that. But if a river flows through your piece of property, then you just have access to use it. And so when we start getting into an area that has a limited amount of water, and I think it's important to note here that water is a finite resource. It is not infinite. It is not just in abundance. And especially when we look at the West, which has been through many decades of drought, it is a very small resource. And so I think there's looking at stakeholders and then maybe to go back, do you want to set a bit of a historical precedent as the Homestead Act gets enacted and how we end up out West and, and divvying up water? I also think some of the inequity starts there. Yeah, absolutely. And it is an interesting framework to think about even, you know, my mother, for instance, who was like one of the, you know, it's from the East Coast, or one of the first people to redraft in the book was like, wait a second, like how we get water here is totally different from how people get water out West. And even trying to like explain that context was tricky. So like you're saying, there's basically two ways that water rights can be allocated. And the first one that's, you know, used in Europe, used in the East Coast, used in lots of wet places is riparian rights which like you said, is basically like, if there's water running through your property, you get to use it, go wild. And then, which is like, I'm sure it feels crazy coming from the West where you're like, wait. It feels insane. Take it. It feels insane. There's this little creek that runs through our property and we can just utilize it for whatever we want, however we want. And it feels foreign. And honestly, it feels kind of uncomfortable and taboo to me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I feel like it goes the other way too, where people are like, wait, if there's water in your property, you can't, that's not your water, even though it's on your property. But I guess to walk it back a little bit, the other way that water rights are allocated is called prior appropriation. And that basically means that on any given water system, the person who was first able to put that water to beneficial use, which is a kind of wonky term, but basically is a state allocated way of that water is you know allowed to be used is has the first right to that water source so they get all their rights before the next person in line gets it and that basically dates back to mining claims and when people were moving west and starting to stake out you know gold mining claims and things like that and somebody had found a spot you know somebody could jump in upstream of them and divert all the water before they got it and so the I think it was the states and the federal government kind of set up this framework for that if you had the first right somebody couldn't come in upstream of you and jack your water. And so that was sort of an equitable way to try and make sure nobody was coming in and diverting all the water when there wasn't anything, when there was a limited resource. And it was sort of, especially when there weren't that many people in the West and you weren't kind of hitting the ends of the limit, it was, it made sense. You know, it was like a way to kind of like define it and put a framework on it. And if you knew, I mean, like there was this kind of awareness that it was a limited resource and everybody couldn't just take as much as they wanted. So it started to kind of put a container around that and put some bounds around how to how to make sense of it. And then 
in the West, I guess the, the sort of like defining legal document in the Southwest, especially is the Colorado River Compact, which impacts all the tributaries of the Colorado and the seven states in the Colorado River Basin. And that basically allocated as prior appropriations kind of started happening. It basically was California's fault. California came in and started using up a bunch <laughs> of water. And the other states upstream, you know, like a, a Wyoming or a Utah or these places that weren't as developed were kind of like, wait a second, we don't want you to get all the water before we even have a chance. So in 1922, the Colorado River Compact basically divided the river into an upper and lower basin. And then the states within that each got a certain, um, in the upper basin, it's a percentage of what the average flow is in the lower basin. It's a, an acre feet, the number-based allocation. And over 10 years, the upper basin had to deliver a certain amount to lower basin. I'm getting way in the weeds, but it basically became this container for how to, how water was allocated. And then within the state, states could kind of decide. States became the kind of like governing body. You know, they knew how much water they could have, they had to allocate which on some level made sense for organizing it, but then also kind of set up this level of like competition. And especially as now when we know that water is finite and shrinking, there's this kind of legal framework that states on some level want to say, hey, we want to get, we want to take everything that's owed to us. But if everyone takes everything that's owed to them, there's not enough to go around. And to back up one kind of important number thing that I forgot to mention is that when they allocated the water in the Colorado River Compact, they had basically been looking at the hydrological records for the past 10 years, and that was the wettest period in history kind of ever. So when they did the math, they basically did the math wrong and allocated more water than actually exists in the river. And then there's been a bunch of research recently about how much that's changing and shrinking because of climate change, because basically when everything is hotter and drier, every living thing needs more water, plants are sucking up more water. We're just kind of like, the numbers were wrong and they're getting even worse as we go into the future. And that really, you know, that means we have to rework this framework that people have relied on for a hundred years. And that's a legal contract that, you know, like people are legally owed. So it sets up this really hard disparity where, you know, like things are going to have to change, but there's no easy, obvious way for things to change. I think that this is such a, it's so fascinating to me that the Colorado River Compact hasn't been updated in, we're coming up on the 100 year anniversary of this thing. And I wanted to set just a little historical precedents too with the Homestead Act because people came out because they were offered 160 acres if they could make it productive, if they could farm it. And when you're coming from east to out west, that is a very different measurement. 160 acres is a very small piece of land to work with when you are out west in the high desert. This is a really dry and arid space. Formerly, it was really just home to ruminants. It was home to bison. It was home to pronghorn and elk and venison. And there was this sort of co-evolution that happened between these animals and the grasslands. And they made really good use of the grass and that grass made really good use of, out of the water. But during the Homestead Act, there's kind of this invitation to come out and do a more conventional style of agriculture that is asking you to grow things at a different scale and a different productivity and to feed a growing population out West. And these things require much more water. And I think that kind of begins this 
way of using water in the West. And instead of going out there, and I think you highlight this really well in the book and using a watershed, people are working within these these allocated water rights that are a part of these seven states. And it's really this trickle down from Wyoming, and you can probably do this better than me, but it starts and it trickles down from Wyoming. And what are the seven states that are involved? Just so people know. Wyoming, Colorado, Utah, New Mexico, Arizona, California, Nevada. That was good. I got that that time. I always forget. I usually forget Arizona. And Arizona is in the upper and lower basin, so it's a little funky. But yeah, you talked earlier about how like when we were first developing as humans, you know, we like tried to be by waterways. And the homestack stack is so interesting on that front because I think initially people were like, when the first couple kind of people came out, they couldn't make, you know, like find a plot of land at, you know, the junction of a couple of creeks and like, you know, ensure that they had, you know, at least some, some access. And then I think as, you know, as the government kind of pushed people west as this expansion, you know, it's like this nationalistic expansion plan, those good plots were, you know, fewer and farther in between. And like you were saying, 160 acres often wasn't enough, you know, like arable land to feed a family. And it is this really, yeah, it's so interesting to kind of try and work back history or walk it back and think about like, okay, what were the decisions that shaped how we did things? And what were the motivations behind them? And how did they line up with the reality? And you try to assume that at any given time, people are doing the best with whatever they have. Really like I try to assume that because I think often it is, you know, like good intentions or wanting a better opportunity for your family or something like that. But um, it was, yeah, like a lot of this, it was sort of broken from the beginning. And I, in Down River, and I think in a lot of Western, you know, water writing and thinking, John Wesley Powell was the, you know, USGS explorer, geographer who mapped the Colorado initially. There's this great Powell map that shows all the different watersheds. And he kind of had this philosophy where he thought that the West should be broken up by watershed. So you're always kind of working within a river basin. You kind of had that finite, or at least for some kind of bounds around what you were working with. Uh, and that got totally scrapped, even in the Colorado River Compact, because you're breaking it down by state. And somewhere like a Colorado, you know, falls on two sides of the continental divide. The water is inherently running in two different river basins. But because the state was the container, there's been all this kind of artificial engineering, trans-mountain diversions, trans-basin diversions, when you're thinking about the state as a framework for water. So a lot of this history and policy has really shaped, you know, how we think about water now. And it is really hard to untangle. It is really tingly. I kept thinking about that as I was reading the book again and about how tangled and complicated it really is. And I think when you think about Powell's vision for things, in some ways, you know, who knows? I think there are a lot of different ways that this might make sense going forward. But I think in Powell's vision of working within a watershed, what you do get is a sense of place to go back to what we were talking Mm -hmm. about earlier, that there is this sense of this is the water that is close to me and having a connection to that water. But when we're talking about headwaters that start in Wyoming and trickle down and end up watering a lot of crops in California, I think that becomes a really hard to quantify and connect to conversation when it comes to water. And especially when we're talking about increasing drought. And I want to go back and highlight what you said, that the Colorado River Compact, which was done about 100 years ago, was done in with a lot of wet years. And I think they allocated 18 million acre feet. Do you want to tell everyone what an acre foot is? 
Yeah, and, and you, you probably actually know this better than I do, but an acre, but it's basically what it sounds like. It's enough water to cover an acre of land, which is like a football field, basically, yep. with water a foot deep. Because yeah. you think about that kind of like expanse of water. And that's kind of like the most common measurement for how water is allocated. Yeah, and they allocated... I think it's, it ends up being 7.5 million acre feet for the upper basin and for the lower. And then there's another million that goes to Mexico because of some international treaties. Is that right? 16 million? That's right. I think it's 18 million I'm total. Something, yeah. I think it's 18 yeah. million acre feet total. And then it runs at about, we use about 15, currently we use about 15 million acre feet per year. And current estimates are looking like it's about 13 million acre feet. Yeah, so it's like running at a... 13. It's running at a pretty significant deficit from that original Colorado River compact. And a lot of why a lot of why it, it has worked up till now is because we have these huge storage reservoirs. And so in the past, in wet years or when like all the water hadn't been allocated, there was sort of a bank of water. And we're those banks are kind of bottoming out incredibly fast, both because of use and because of climate change and evaporation. And because we're not getting the inflows that we used to or kind of assume that we would or that the math is based on. So there's been Lake Powell and Lake Mead are kind of those huge storage reservoirs. And they store, I think it's about 20 million acre feet between them. And there was a report that came out just in the past couple of weeks about how especially isn't going to be able to generate power anymore because the water levels are dropping so low. And then it'll get below what they call power pool, which is basically the ability to run the turbines in the dam that that creates electricity. And it becomes this huge knot because a lot of the the electrical, uh, the revenue from the electricity production is often used to fund endangered species programs and pay for, it's like all, it's all <laughs> tangled together. So in addition to kind of like, you know, what our life and livelihood for people who depend on the water, it's not, it's not just people. And it's all, you know, like all the systems are kind of like built up on top of each other. Yeah. I didn't realize that. I didn't even consider that. To be honest, in my first reading of Downriver, I'm not sure I recognized how often water is used to generate power. And I think that was some of my naivete. I just didn't realize that these massive storage facilities, these dams, which was a big part of this sort of building boom during a really specific part of American history. And, and it was a really totally. big deal. Not only are these dams storing water and then generating electricity, they're also breaking down at a pretty quick rate. They're not in a in great shape anymore. Yeah. I mean, we had this big, like you're saying, this like big infrastructure boom in the 30s and 40s and 50s in the US. And that slowed down. You know, no one's building new huge hydroelectric dams anymore. But in a lot of places, you know, I live in the Northwest. We depend on the a lot of my electricity is hydro you know, for better or worse, you know, there's all sorts of issues with species and sedimentation and river health because of that. But if we're looking at, you know, like clean energy and electricity, you know, a lot of the conversations now are about like, where are we going to get that? If these existing sources are breaking down, how do we do that in a way that is, I mean, there's, there's no good answers in so much of this. But yeah, it's not, I think, like I was saying earlier, one of my big assumptions was like, dams are bad. And like, yes, totally. They, there's all sorts of bad things that come from damming rivers, but they're also a lot of the things that we have now in the way we have built our society are based around that. And you can't just, it's not logical to wipe that clean. Yeah. So it's not like we can just be like, get rid of them back to zero. Cause then all of a sudden, you know, the, where's your water coming from? Where's your, where's your electricity to run your electric car coming from? Yeah. And I think it's naughty. 
it gets back to that idea that there are all these stakeholders and all these parties involved and and it's all around water and here's something that's so essential to life and that means wildlife and that means human life and that means power and i think one of the conversations that happens in downriver that really captivated me you know when we started our little butcher shop in denver one of our questions is how do we bridge a gap between urban and rural environments especially when we're talking about growing food because so much of food is grown in rural environments and then trucked into the city and then consumers in the city eat the food but they don't necessarily connect it back to where it's grown and whether that's in their state or whether that's in California i think that there is a really similar if not the same connection because water is food and i think that's something we miss is how much water actually goes into our food stuffs whether you're talking about growing a pound of rice or a pound of beef there is a water input on the side of that and so i think there's this sort of disconnect and then we have these booming populations in places like denver and salt lake city which you know i think in the last year I was living in Denver, it was either, I think it was 2018, a million people moved to Denver County. And so all of those people need water. And so I think a lot of this conversation happens in... And I love you talk in the book about we're growing a crop of people. And so when we look at municipally used water and the relationship between urban and rural water usage... I don't know. I'm just wondering if you can kind of illuminate some of that conversation. I feel like it's such an important question, not even just about... It's about water, but it's about everything. Like, I think you look at politics right now and government yes. funding and spending. and But I think the food one is such a clear, like, illumination of that and a sort of, like, disconnect between those places and a lack of understanding of, like, people who are different than you or who might use resources different than you. And I think it is so easy to be like, oh, yeah, it's December in Boston and I want strawberries. Here they are. And not think about, like, what? Okay, how did they get here? Why can I have this fruit that doesn't grow in this season in this place? Let's walk it back. And I think, especially in the water conversation, if you look at the, in the West, the pie of water use, you know, ag get a huge amount of it. It's in some in Wyoming, it's 90%. And, you know, depending on the state, it's you know, somewhere between 70 and 90%. And if you look at the math in that, I think a lot of people say like, there's sort of this like common assumption of like, oh, well, like people are just flood irrigating alfalfa fields. Like we need to, can we take some water out of agriculture and bring it to cities so that people can live in these population centers? And like, yeah, maybe, but there's also a point where like, you can't just keep doing that. Cause at some point, you know, like I talked to a rancher in Wyoming and he was like, yeah, you can always like, you can rebuild cities. You can regrow cities. You can't like once the food, once we've built over all the ag land, like we can't have that back. And so I think it is the sort of like the math and the actual like efficiency and where it goes doesn't line up. And I think it's really hard. It can be really hard to like, it's really hard to understand things that you don't have context on. So I think for somebody in a city, you know, like getting their bag of arugula or whatever it is, like it's really hard to kind of like hold the mental space to work that back and imagine where that came from and really think about like, okay, what goes into that? You know, for me, even for me, like in as somebody, I mean, part of why I wanted to write down river was I was felt like I was somebody who like thought about this quite a bit and was connected to rivers. And I still had such a minimal understanding of how it actually worked and how it came together. And even just looking, you know, like I drive around places now and I'm kind of like, oh, that field is green. Why is that green? Oh, look at that. That's a ditch. Somebody <laughs> built that ditch. 
like that kind of just like how much infrastructure and building and work and context goes into that. I think it's so easy to miss if you don't know what you're looking for. Yeah. I mean, I, what are you talking about in kind of like the food production conversations about how to bridge that gap and how to, you know, like create empathy and awareness in both directions or in any direction, really? I'm actually going to go back to something you said in the book, which is what we don't see, we don't consider. Mm-hmm. And I think that there is this disconnect in spaces that we don't see and we don't interact with and we don't understand. And I love... I don't even know if we covered this, that throughout the book, your river running down the green river and looking at the stakeholders as you do this, like from the river's view. And I think I don't want to lose that string here in this conversation. You know, when I look at the food conversation, I'm usually coming from the perspective of beef and of ruminants, which is really what I'm passionate about. And having a conversation about how we can build ecosystems using ruminants and sort of mimicking with regenerative agriculture, mimicking the way that bison and pronghorn and that these ruminants would have roamed the grasslands. And when you do that, that relationship helps increase water absorption in soil. It helps increase the ability of soil to capture rainwater. Whereas in conventional agriculture and in monoculture, you're seeing a lot of that water. The soil is so dry, so dead that it can't absorb the water. And so it just runs off and it takes the topsoil with it. And that topsoil ends up largely in the Gulf of Mexico. And so it's really, how do we keep that topsoil there? And how do we keep the water in that watershed? And I think that when you're sometimes I think about this as food as a byproduct of conservation, mm-hmm. how can food be that space? And I think that there's a really interesting conversation for ruminants in that because the majority of the water that they use is green water, which is water that falls from the sky. When you look at grass finished beef in particular, you see a 97 to 98% of all the water that goes into that beef, which people estimate with grass finished beef, it's about 50 to 100 gallons of water per pound of beef. Conventional finished beef is around 280 gallons. A pound of rice is around 410 gallons, just to kind of give a frame of reference. (laughs) And so most of it is rainwater. It's water that would have fallen on that soil anyway. And so I think that When we're looking at the West, one of the most curious things to me is that we move out West and we have this land, grasslands, that's really built specifically for ruminants. I mean, it's just made for that. It's made for these grasses that know exactly what to do with drought. They're drought tolerant. Uh, And instead, we divert a lot of water to California where, and this is from the book, we grow one third of the nation's vegetables and two thirds of the nation's fruit, just largely in California's Central Valley. And I think that's wild. And one of the things I always consider in that is I think 81% of all the garlic that gets used in the U.S., though it might be larger than the U.S., is grown in a single county and alliums grow everywhere. You know, how do we... How do we end up in this little space in the Central Valley using all this water to grow food? Yeah, imported water. I like that. Yeah, it's such an interesting like capitalism (laughs) framework and efficiency. It's like, have we sacrificed, you know, ecosystem health or, you know, like culture community for the sake of efficiency or cheapness? And that's like such a can of worms that I don't even know. But I think you, one of the things that you talked about that I think is super interesting that really 
changed my framework is when I was thinking, especially when I was talking to kind of ranchers in Wyoming, I think one of the things we don't talk about a ton or that gets kind of glossed over because it's complicated is consumptive and non-consumptive water use. And this is something that a lot of these ranchers were kind of like really hammered on. They're like, yeah, we flood irrigate. But while we're doing that, it's providing, you know, ecosystem for migratory birds or pronghorn or all these other animals. And then most of it kind of seeps down into the soil and is then stored and released slowly over the course of the year. So I think it's not the kind of like, there's not a clear one-to-one about that stuff. And, you know, it was easy for me to come in from a city and be like, oh, yeah, they're using too much water. And then I went and talked to these people whose families had been there since the 1860s when they came out because the Homestead Act. And they're so clearly in tune with how much rainfall they get. They know that the glaciers are shrinking upstream. They're being really conscious of that. It's just their priorities and their framework are different than what mine might be. And they're not wrong. They're just coming at it from a different angle. And I think like you're saying, it's like really hard to see that if you don't understand it and you haven't, you don't have like a, and that's sort of, I think what I was trying to do in the book is like, and the, the adventure story is kind of part of that. It's like, okay, how do you give people a line, an interesting kind of hooky line in to even have start to have some context on that? Yeah, I think when you see it, yeah. it, it changes you and it changes the way that you view it. And I think I'm always coming from the other side. I'm always coming from the rancher's perspective. And I'm always coming from the, how is it that we have lawns and golf courses in Phoenix, Arizona? Totally. How is yeah. that the case? And I think there's a... There's a wonderful statistic, and I don't know exactly what it was in the book, about Las Vegas cutting their water usage by, I think, 36% while their population grew substantially. And, you know, I think it's easy... If we're growing a crop of humans in the desert, what are we going to feed them if we divert all of that water from agriculture? And we know some farmers that have actually sold off their water rights to, they've dried off their farms and sold them to the city. And so I think that this is a, it's an important conversation because there's a balance that has to be struck there between the humans that we're growing and the food that we're growing to feed the humans. And the ecosystem, the fisheries and the recreation. And I think that's a really big part of this too. But I think that, you know, the ecosystem is a strange and sort of esoteric, hard to quantify stakeholder in this. Just something that is wild. Hard to to value too. I think that that's one of the, you know, like I got, I can get ranty about capitalism, but I think one of these things, like the things that's really hard about it is that we've really sort of like devalued food production and ecosystem services because it's harder to put a number on that than it might be real estate development or something like that. And we're so used to, you know, going into Trader Joe's and getting a bag of greens for a dollar fifty. And it's hard to then build that value back up. So I think it's really, you know, and like it's I have a lot of empathy for people who are kind of drying up their farms because, you know, maybe you don't have kids or there's not an obvious next generation that's going to take it over. And it's really freaking hard. Yeah. Farming is really, you know, like you're and all your sort of like equity and your life is like kind of built into this farm and you're tired and you want to retire and there's no kind of succession. I think succession planning for farming and finding ways for young people to get into it in a way that is, you know, valuable. I think it's really hard. And I think that's, that's sort of this like, Oh God, it's like, (laughs) there's so many kind of like big, societal issues tied up in that. But I think it, it, yeah, it's like there's not, doing this work is really hard. Like I'm very impressed, you know, like in awe of what you guys are doing. 
It is hard. And I think, and you cover this, that, you know, the average age of, of the American farmer is, I think it's 65 or 68. Yeah. It is quite old and, and not many of their children want to get back into that. That's not where the conversation is going. And I think that to get back to your point, capitalism has driven a different conversation of what people want out of their lives. And there just isn't very much money in farming. And so yeah. to go back yeah. to that space... Yeah, and it's hard too. From the you know, it's hard to get a loan to buy a farm. You you, you oh, know yeah. this more, oh, yeah. better than I do. But like, if you're somebody who does want to get into that, it's the system's not set up to make that easy for you, especially no. if you're not you know like a white person with a history in a certain community. Yes. It's very there's inaccessible. So many, there's, yeah, there's so many reasons why this stuff is hard. Yeah, I think you said something. Yeah. I don't know if it was George that said it in the book that water flows uphill to money. Oh yeah, that's. I feel like I've heard that's like one of those sort of like Mark Twainy like things. But I think and, it's true, and it's like like you said earlier, water is it's a finite resource, and there's you know there's all sorts of sort of like hedge fund speculation about water starting to happen these days. Is there really? Know. Oh yeah, yeah. There's some stuff happening in Western Colorado. There's a couple. I can send you links and stuff so we can post notes. But um, I want to do that. Yeah, because it's this kind of awareness that you know like we need water, and it's not they're not making any more of it, and it gets into this really interesting. I think water rights are complicated in this front too, where it's like, how do you value water at a point that people don't waste it and also make it equitable to people? Like, how do you make sure that everyone can get enough water and not that there isn't like an excess? And I think this is where, you know, like, how do we make sure people in cities have enough water? It's such a, I don't know, it feels, you know, obviously people who are much smarter than me have worked on this for a really long time, but it feels like such a impossible question that we're really going to have to counter now and soon that you know that's tied to food production that's tied to you know how do we value ecosystem services tied to where do people get to live and who gets to make the choices we're coming up against that conversation hard and fast and i think that just to follow this thread of money and capitalism i think that the conversation about water has always been really short term you know we're not taking a long term view of what it means to interact with water and to share space with water and to use it and to divide it as equitably as possible there's just a lot of nearsightedness in this and yeah. i think the colorado river compact was not built in that way of preparing for a child 100 years from now i don't think they sat and said in 2022 what might this look like? And is the policy that's being put in place now going to help make that a good space? I think that's so true of like how many environmentalists you talk about fossil fuels. You, like there's so, I think it's really hard to have that kind of long-term foresight, but I think there's been so little of that in the kind of systems that we're working with now and that we've, you know, yeah. And it's like, we are, like you said, we're coming up against that hard and fast. Yeah. Sustainable. And it's going to take, you know, like they're doing the renegotiating what they call interim guidelines for the Colorado River, which is sort of like states are going to have to take cutbacks. They're trying to figure out kind of the math on that. So people are trying to rejigger the system. But within that, you are having these conversations about like, can people speculate on, you know, like, is the highest bidder going to be able to just grab, snap up water rights? It gets like pretty close to pretty fast. It does. It does. And I think, I think we might from the math side, I think it gets a little scary and and there just isn't a lot of backstop in place. One of the things I I was really aware of as I was reading is how often you related water and money, you know, that the way that you Mm -hmm. talked about dams as sort of a savings account for water 
I kept thinking about water being like monetary policy. We are mm-hmm. printing money that we don't have. And you know, whether we're talking about having left the gold standard, wherever it's from, and we're using water that we don't have. And so there's just this full disconnect with no with ramifications going to happen. And we're going to rub up against those, I think, quicker than we think. And I think it's just kind of, it's kind of heartbreaking for me. I was actually, I I have this burning question. Have you read Robert McFarland's Underland? Do you read Robert McFarland? I haven't. It's been on my list. Yeah. I haven't read it though. We'll have to have a book list going. (laughs) (laughs) This is one of my favorite books of all time. This book just really moved me. And I kept thinking as you were running down these canyons, I kept thinking about the way that water carves these cliffs out of time, right? Like this just like Mm -hmm. slow erosion that carves all these places and that really shapes the landscape. Everything that we know has been in a lot of ways shaped and moved by water, especially out West when we're talking about something like the Grand Canyon or this is shaped by water. And I was thinking now humans have, have shaped water. We've shaped the way that water flows and really changed that journey that water is making and our relationship to land. And I just, how are we changing our landscapes with the way that we use water? Which I guess is yeah. kind of a big question, but it's such a big question. But I think it's and it's hard. I feel like that's another one of those things that's sort of hard to wrap your head around and, until you're in it. And I was back on the green this summer. I did a week long trip in Desolation Canyon, which kind of you dump out in Green River, Utah. And I hadn't been back on that stretch for two or three years. It's been a little while. And it was really just like shocking to me how different it looked. The river was really low in part because it had been a dry year in part because they weren't releasing that much out of the dam upstream. But there were all these sort of like places along the river where there's normally seeps. And so there'll be like little kind of green forests and water kind of gripping out of them. And they were all just like dry and white and calcified. It was really creepy. And then we ended up seeing, we saw bears down by the river. We saw a ton of wildlife, which was really cool. But we also were kind of like, oh, this is because they're having to come down to the river and they're not, you know, like some water sources that they might've had otherwise are drying up or aren't accessible right now. And it was, I don't know if I'm really answering your question at all, but it was just really, that was kind of one of those like in your face moments of like, Oh yes, this is changing. And like we, this sort of place that you think of is, or I think of as being like beautiful and natural. And even though it's obviously not, there's a dam upstream of it, like kind of seeing those impacts year after year felt really that hit me really hard this year it was also you know this was in early june there was a big fire right outside of moab going when we were in there it was 110 degrees and you're kind of like the air is smoky it's hot just sort of like changing human generated apocalypse in this place that i'd kind of thought of as being you know like off the grid and untouched a little bit that that hit me really hard i love that because i think i walk the same path every day i'm very regimented and i mm. I, I love it and i did this in denver josh and i would do the same hikes over and over and over again and i think it's really amazing because you actually get to become intimate with a place and you get to know a place and then you can you can see those changes and you can really say, oh, this is very different than other times that I've been here. And I think it also, all the wildlife that is a stakeholder in this, whether you're talking about bears or you're talking about fish or pronghorn, there's so much that we share water with that I think that we're not always cognizant of. And 
it changes the landscape when we're drawing them down from, you know, what might be little springs or, or small creeks, whatever it is that they're finding their water that are drying up. And then you mentioned, and, and this could be a podcast in and of itself, fire. I mean, the West, mm-hmm. every summer, the West is burning. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting. We, um, I was in Boise the last couple of days. My partner had a job offer there. So we went to kind of check in and decide if that would be a place that we wanted to live, which is a whole other conversation. <laughs> that place. But we were talking to some of his coworkers who had moved there, you know, semi-recently. And they're like, oh, yeah, well, this year was really, you know, like, it was really smoky this year. But, like, everyone said that wasn't normal. And it's like, we have to be realistic about the fact that, like, this could be the best summer we ever get for the rest of our lives. And, like, that kind of smoke and fire. And that's another thing that's such a interesting, tricky thing about place. Like I was saying, I was back east in August and September, and we were right, kind of, I got there kind of right at the start of hurricane season. And my best friend's parents were kind of like trying to batten down the hatches because they were right in one of the storm tracks. And you're, you know, it's like thinking about that, the dysmorphia of kind of flying back and forth and, you know, being, leaving the West Coast and everything was like super smoky and it hadn't rained all summer and then kind of dropping into this like place where like all the, you know, the water table totally soaked, the creeks are flooding you know, things are right at their tipping point there. It's just such a, you know, it's, it's so hard to kind of like hold all of that in your brain. I agree. Be like, okay, we did this. I agree with that coming from the West and here where, where everything is soaked and hurricane season. And I think there's some, some serious cognitive dissonance on, on we're going to be facing different problems in different parts of the country. We're going to be inundated with water in one place and, and not have a drop to spare yeah. in another. And I also think that makes it hard from a policy level in some ways and from an understanding that conversation because there's such a disconnect even between between places. One of the things I, w- I was sitting with my husband this morning at the breakfast table and we were trying to talk about like, why do we grow all this food in California? We were talking about the fires mm-hmm. and we were talking about your book. And the best thing that I can come up with is that it's almost like growing food in a completely controlled environment because it's pretty temperature controlled. It's pretty humidity controlled. And then you add however much water, whatever you're growing needs. Totally. Yeah. And I thought like now we're at a tipping point where you can't really do that anymore. No. These outside the, yeah, the extreme drought, the fires, the, yeah, yeah. That's, I think that, I think you're totally spot on. Yeah. And I think we have some friends that grow vegetables a little bit south of us here in New York. And last summer, we had a really, really dry summer up here. And they mm-hmm. loved it because they just irrigated what they needed. And this summer, they've had... It's been one of the wettest years on record, back to back. And they've had a really difficult time with things rotting in the ground, just being so yeah. soaked, so saturated that there's mold, there's mildew, and it's more difficult to control. And so I think that... Just wanted to highlight, I don't think it's a full coincidence that we ended up growing all this food in California, but I do think there has to be some consideration of how we might look at it going forward in a different way. And again, connected to place. So if we're talking about a local watershed, something that we've always talked about are smaller food sheds. Yeah. Do you like have ways that you want or like things that you want people to know about it or ways that you like want people to think about it? Because I feel like that sort of like local... That idea of localism feels so core to me, but I think that's such a hard, even like 
this is sort of like not quite analogous, but even thinking about, you know, I have this book coming out in the world and I'm trying to promote it and get people to buy this book. And I keep being like, go to your local bookstore, go to your local bookstore, go to your, your local bookstore, don't order it from Amazon, you know, like support the thing that you want to have in your community. Yes. Like if you want, if you want to be able to go in and like browse the cute little bookstore, you have to give them money. You know, like it is that kind of like, how do you, how do you try and sort of like enforce and enhance that community building aspect when it's way cheaper, easier, whatever the factor is to not. And I think that's such a hard, you know, like how do you get people to get over that sort of convenience? I, I actually factor. think you said it. I think you said it best. We save what we love and we love what we know. And so one of the things I encourage people the most is to go get to know your farmers, go get to know your mm-hmm. ranchers. If you can go there in person and actually spend time and see where your food comes from, because I think that begins to change that relationship. And if you can't go yeah, in person, totally. you know, buy something local and get to really love that piece of produce in that season where you are. Right. Mm-hmm. And so I think about this out West all the time. I mean, like a really great tomato is happening at the end of August, not the beginning of June. So get mm-hmm. to know that, mm-hmm. that piece in that, that time. Is the thing, man. Yeah. Love your food. Love your glass of water. I actually, when we lived in Colorado, I don't drink tap water. I'm a water snob. And <laughs> we used to, we used to go take glass carboys and get spring water. And Mm -hmm. I think that when you begin to just shift your relationship to something and recognize where it comes from, I I think just that, that small act begins to change things. Even if it's just, you know, a small portion of your food every week, right? Like, or you, you get a small cow share or you go in on a cow share with a bunch of people. Yeah. I think you can get to know land through food, but even better if you can, you can visit a farmer. I don't want to miss a chance to talk about powder days because I think that this really excites me. And I think, you know, to go back up the mountain where the water melts from and look at skiing from a historical perspective and how it shaped America, which I'm so curious about. Yeah, I think it's so interesting having the kind of like homestead act conversations on top of that. Because I think so much... I think I kind of set out to write a book about skiing and about sort of like the obsession around it. And it really kind of selfishly kind of became this book about like, how does Heather grow up and be a person in the world? And because so much of that sort of like American, you know, narrative of like growing up and going on an adventure is so tied. And I think like that was kind of like the homestead narrative and the move west narrative mm-hmm. and the 49ers narrative. And I think, you know, like these days or, you know, 20 years ago when I was starting to do that, this kind of like move to the mountains for an adventure was like that slice of it that I could hook into that was like actual, actually real and accessible. And it felt like I could kind of like, you know, prove my own way and prove that I was brave and do that. So there is this kind of, and like one of the kind of like first chunks of the book was untangling that and um kind of talking, working back the history and the myth and like, okay, where did this idea of like recreation towns come from? It can't, you know, like a lot of it came out, out of World War II and the, you know, people from the military coming back and wanting to have a sense of what they saw in Europe. There's this very kind of like Eurocentric white person <laughs> framework around it. And then it got codified in these like movies and magazines and storytelling and all these sort of like fancy celebrities were going to Aspen and creating this sort of like mythology around it. So there is a super interesting history around kind of like how the idea became such a such a sort of like solidified idea. And then the kind of the second half of the book is like working back that myth and what it looks like now. And a lot of these mountain towns are really kind of like compressed microcosms for economic inequality and for like how, you know, like people my age can't afford to buy houses. How Airbnb has changed how we use 
you know, like landscapes and how, you know, when you kind of have these like compressed desirable places, who, who gets to be in and who gets to be out. And then when, mm. you know, climate change is making all of that trickier, who's going to win uh. and who's going to lose. And then there's sort of like a whole chunk about some of the most interesting part to do, parts to do in research were about sort of the mental health aspects and who kind of like who, who's drawn to that kind of lifestyle. And then like what the downsides can be when you're potentially like seeing a lot of trauma when you're living in this really sort of like razor's edge kind of lifestyle you know a lot of these mountain towns have super high suicide rates there's a lot of people trying to do work around that yeah yeah it's super and there's a lot of utah recently hired a state suicidologist because suicide rates were so high they call it the suicide belt kind of like montana wyoming utah the Rocky Mountain West. And there's all these kind of like, there's some research about how altitude is a factor in that. There's also some sort of like social constructs, you know, access to mental health care, guns, all these mm-hmm. kinds of things. But yeah, it was kind of, you know, it started out as this kind of idea about like, why do people get obsessed with skiing? And it yeah. just kind of became this really interesting microcosm for all these, you know, like you could, I think you could probably say that about whatever wormhole you're down and this happens to be the one that I'm down, but like, how do all these other big picture factors kind of compress in this in one little place? And how do you try and like, grow up and be a good person and have a life that you like, but that's also like positive in society in this weird little world. So yeah, it's, it's a book about everything. <laughs> I, I love that. I can't wait to read it. I'm curious. One of my, my thoughts in talking about powder days and especially as you mentioned, some of the mental health struggles and things like that, when we talk about a connection to place, when we're talking about recreation like skiing or river running, we're talking about something that has some inherent danger to it. And so what draws us to places that are so precipitous and cold and fast and and dangerous? Yeah, yeah. It's such, a, it's such an interesting question. And I think part of it is, this is like maybe my philosophy as opposed to research, but I think there is a level at which like our lives are pretty soft right now. And like we have sort of this like innate human need to like feel something and to challenge ourselves. And I think there's also, there's a lot of pretty interesting research about not necessarily like directly related to skiing, but related to action sports and kind of all these like high adrenaline, you know, activities and certain people just have like different baselines for that. They call it sensation seeking. It's like one of these sort of like, you know, CSM frameworks. Um, And certain people just have like higher set points for sensation seeking. And it shows up in like tiny kids. Like, you know, there's some kids who are going to be like throwing themselves headfirst down the slide and some kids who are going to be super cautious. So there is this kind of like nature aspect of it. And then there's also a nurture aspect where, you know, when you're surrounded, I think this is one of the reasons why these places can be really hard to live in is when you're surrounded by people who are always kind of pushing the limit, you feel like you have to keep pushing it to be normal and to keep up. Somebody explained it to me that dopamine, like the kind of rush that you get Mm -hmm. from doing these things, it's not a like fulfilling chemical. It's like a wanting chemical. So you get a hit, you like do something and then your body is like automatically like looking for the next hit. It's like, I got that. I want more. I want more. I want more. I want more. So there's like, it's sort of this like feedback loop. It is a feedback loop. And there's this pleasure pain aspect to dopamine. And there's the Mm. pleasure of like, oh, this is really good. This is really fun. And the pain that like, oh, this is going to end and I want more. Dopamine was actually... I'm really fascinated by dopamine loops. I think there's a really book, a cool book called The Molecule of More. And it's an exploration of dopamine in the human mind and how that operates. 
There's some implication that the original use of dopamine was really this feedback system. It's called a reward prediction error. And so it's when you're, mm. you're, you see something unexpected and it kind of surprises you and you get this little uptick in dopamine because of that. And that it was really yeah. created in a gathering sense that all of a sudden you'd be walking past a bush that you've walked past a, a thousand times and it has red fruit on it and the fruit is good totally. and it has yeah. sugar in it. And so your brain is like, it upregulates dopamine because we have to remember this moment. This bush had totally. sugary, delicious fruit on it. We need to know that for later. And so I think that that's really interesting because I think in some ways that almost relates it back to this way that I have this deeply held belief that we're really governed by nature in ways that, that we don't always acknowledge, whether that's, you know, the light and our circadian rhythm, the light from the sun, or just the way that ions flow between us and earth and all of these bits and pieces. But I think that creates an interesting relationship between us and nature when it comes to adventure all of these totally. high peaks and fast waters and how that actually plays with our neurobiology. Yeah. And I think we're kind of in this point now where like society has evolved faster than our brains have. And so it's like, yes. yeah, we're still trying to find the red berries or trying to find, you know, like food or sex or whatever the kind of like things that we need are. And it's like the way one of the psychologists explained it to me, he's like, it's like, we're all going to Disneyland on meth right now. Like we're so jacked <laughs> up by like the things that are around us that we, our bodies and our brains can't process it. But I think it's like, we do have this innate, this is one of the things that's like harder to pin down, but I feel like we do have this like inborn innate need to be outside and need to be on those rhythms and need to be kind of like feeling our edges and pushing ourselves. And it is like, it feels sort of like woo woo sometimes, but I'm like, I know that I have that. There's a reason that I can't quite pin down, but I feel the need to be outside and in these places. I mean, I feel in some ways, right? Like we only really put four walls between us and nature not that long ago, but for most of human history, yeah, we've been really in deep connection with place. And I think, and I want to bring up something else you said, that place, nature, it's uncomfortable. There's a lot of sharp edges and it's cold. And, you know, that discomfort that we feel, you mentioned that, that life is kind of soft and these adventuring places provide these sort of edges to explore for ourselves. And I, we're going to do another, have you, have you read Scott Carney's What Doesn't Kill Us? No, you need to make me a list. Of he talks a lot about a cold exposure and how that mm. kind of regulates us and just the act of, of getting into more discomfort. And I saw so much of that in, I mean, in down river you were in, I mean, it was hot and it's muddy and it's buggy. And it felt like there was both discomfort and flow also almost a meditative yeah. flow. And it's interesting. yeah it's like now do we have to i've been thinking, thinking a lot like sort of in my own life about like efficiency and like what are the things i do because they're like faster or easier instead of like good or like positive and trying mm. to kind of i think you know this last year has been a weird time for that but like taking that time to like slow down a little bit and be like okay yeah i'm gonna like you know like it with this weird thing that I've never eaten before from the CSA box and like figure out how to work with it instead of being like, oh, whatever, like just get, get pizza. <laughs> like, you know, like there's all that's also a little bit blown out. But thinking about like, okay, what are those values and like why is my body kind of trying to chase them? And why does that, you know, like how much of that am I kind of like artificially creating? And is there a reason? I think it's the same why like 
you know, everybody's back to like trying to make sourdough. And like, there's something that feels inherently really good about that effort and about that kind of like, yeah, you're fighting, you're like working in the, the uncomfortable things make the comfortable things good. Like you need to have that kind of like balance to feel it, I think. Have you read yeah. Wintering? No. By Catherine May. Oh my God, you would love it. It's so good. Sort of about this one woman, she's a British woman and she kind of, it's her journey she had all these kind of like things in her personal life break down and she kind of gets fascinated with this idea of like seasonality and like needing a break. And this idea of like winter is supposed to be a time for like hibernating and being fallow. And it kind of follows her through a year or so of like figuring that out. But she gets really, I read it. I just like happened to pick it up around New Year's this year and it totally scrambled my brain and in a good way. And she has this whole part. She gets really into cold water swimming. And kind of using that as a metaphor for like trying to feel things and like trying to be like, mm. okay, what can I sit with? It's uncomfortable. How does that make me feel you know, mm. more alive and more awake? And it's a little bit of like, you know, artificial, you're going to the, the lake or the ocean or whatever and jumping in. But there is something about that, like being out there, feeling something, being uncomfortable. But like, you know, there's a bunch of research now about how that like is good for our brains and it can fight depression and it can fight, you know, yeah. all these other things going on. I think, so yeah, I think there's really, that's something I'm thinking about a lot is like, how do you untangle those? Like, what does your brain and your body want you to do? And how can you have that? I love that. And I love, we moved out here. A big part of it was that I really wanted to live cyclically. I wanted to live with the seasons and I really wanted to feel those transitions mm -hmm. and what it meant to go fast and hard in summer and what it meant to slow down and be softer in winter. And so I really love that. And I think there is something to be said for both our brain and body and how they're wired into wanting to have uncomfortable experiences that, that mm -hmm. sort of push us to the edge. And in terms of cold thermogenesis, there is a lot of research on its ability to help with depression. I'm actually a really big proponent mm -hmm. of cold plunging and cold, even just cold showers and our, our well water is, mm -hmm. is cold. And I think that it has a lot of benefits to confer to us. And I think that when we look at the evolution of humans, we would have been exposed to cold quite a bit more and, and had to sort of be in that situation. And it has a lot of physiological effects from the way that it creates brown fat on your body, which actually increases your ability to regulate your temperature and your metabolism as well, and regulate some of those neurotransmitters that make us feel good and just overcoming an mm -hmm. obstacle. And I think that's so much of adventure too, right? Is, is a challenge that's set forth before you that you get to immerse yourself in and reach a finish line of and say, oh, I did this. Mm -hmm, totally. Yeah, um, there was a good um, New York Times story this morning, or it's probably been the last couple of days. I read it this morning about one of the guys from Pearl Jam is putting in all these skate parks in Montana, in all these small towns. And he was like, I feel like a big part, he grew up in small town Montana. And he was like, a big part of it was me being like, I could like fall down and get bashed and get back up. And he's like, that was a big part of my sort of like self-confidence as a young person being like, I can overcome this like hurt and get back on the horse. Yeah. And I think we're like, that's, yeah, that's like it. resilience is an important part of being a human. I think it's resilience. And I also think in some ways it's neuroplasticity that, that act mm -hmm. of like trying mm -hmm. something over and over again and getting frustrated and then getting through it, that creates the same plasticity in our brain that we had during childhood, that sort of loop of mm -hmm. frustration and dopamine. And I yeah. think that yeah and it builds resilience and i think that's important to remember and i think too maybe to sort of wrap this up on a hopeful note is nature is also resilient we are a part of nature and mm -hmm. our resilience is mirrored there and nature mirrors back at least that's what i think 
curious what you you would say about that as well though yeah i think that that is a really good way of thinking i think i can sort of get if i think about it too hard i can get pretty grim about it but i think that you're right it's like we have to also like see the positive things too and not just think it's bad it's bad it's bad it's getting worse and be like okay what can we do to make it better and like what are we how do we work within reality in a way that is also like positive and regenerative and like trying to make things better instead of just kind of like eh it sucks. <laughs> <laughs> do you have any thoughts on how people can, can connect with water to change I mean, I think it? The, how do I we think get to know it? Local stuff is really huge. I think it is. It's like know where your water comes from. Know what's going on in your local watershed in your city. Who are the people who are managing it on at a local level, at a state level? I think all of this is sort of like community engagement is such a big part of it. And being like, okay, if you want to... I think one of the things I've been thinking about a lot for me personally, and just like at the point that I'm in now, it's like, we're the grownups now. Like, I'm not a kid, you know, like I'm an adult who can affect change. Yeah. And like, okay, how do we want to do that? And like, don't just because like systems are in place doesn't mean that they can't be changed. So I think it is. Yeah. It's like figure out what, and you can't, this is something my mom tells me when I get all worked up. It's like, you can't fix everything. So like, think about okay, what feels important, like focus, you know, like yeah. figure out what feels important, figure out what you can connect to. Is that food? Is that water? Is that trails is that you you know like whatever that thing might be yes you know go and dig in that thing that you love and that you know and that you feel connected yeah yeah and it takes a village we're all going to take up these mantles and i think that's good that we're all taking up a different mantle yeah I okay. saw someone in the article there that was like, young people, like, pick a cause that nobody else cares about and go for it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> really um, I'm rambling. We're, we're gone. I have one last question that I ask everybody, which is, what does it mean for you to lay the groundwork? And in this case, it can be for your personal life. It can be for water. It can be for the environment. What does it mean to lay the groundwork? Oh, that's such a big question. I think there's maybe like two tracks there. And I think, you know, like my work and my personal life feel so like inter- intertwined a lot of the time. But I think for me personally right now, it is sort of like that, like digging in and building roots and like being like, okay, if this is the place, how do I make it the place? And I think work-wise, the way I think about it a lot is like, okay, how can I be, you know, yeah, I can't do it. I can't do everything. How can I sort of like be a spotlight on things that I think are important and find ways to like give people lines in so like they even know about it. So I think it's, yeah, it's like the like internal, how do I root down? And then how do I also kind of like try and look outward? I love that. I don't know. That's a really good, I think that's sort of like an evolving all the time question too. Yeah. I think it should be evolving. I mean, I think we're evolving as everything is evolving and changing and shifting. And so it's just, it's one of those questions that I've used to check back in with myself over the years. Yeah. Yeah. I like that a lot. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to keep that. Well, Heather, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. And we'll have lots of links in the show notes to all all kinds of books, all kinds of information. (laughs) And I really, truly cannot wait to read Powder Days. When when does it come out? November 9th. Go talk to your local bookstore. (laughs) Find your local bookstore. Find that place that you love and you want to support. Okay. Thank you. This was so fun. Thank you for, for doing this. Yeah. Thank you for sharing all your knowledge about water. It just means the world to me. Okay. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Groundwork Podcast. If what you heard today resonated with you, may I ask that you share it with your friends or leave us a review? This helps others find Groundwork. If you're looking for more, you can find us at groundworkcollective.com and at Groundwork Collective on Instagram. I would like to give a very special thank you to China and Seth Kent of the band All Right, All Right for clips from the beautiful song Over the Edge from their album, The Crucible. 
You can find them at All Right All Right on Instagram and wherever you listen to music. <laughs>